0: restaurant unstoppable episode 427 the best thing to do is shine because if more if you
1: do the job and you work hard and you show up early and you stay late and you go the extra mile and you help out your coworkers, you'll move forward i mean one of the things with cooks is one of the when it came time to promotion one of the things i always look for is you know when it's really ugly are they helping the guys next to them you know are they helping the people around them? Are they yelling and screaming at everybody? Are they 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 getting their plate up and going over, you know, and saying, "Hey, Susie, let me help you out." You know, are they at the end of the night? Are they, you know, first to get the bucket of water and start scrubbing the line, or they go out and have two cigarettes and come in and yell at the yell at the new guys to clean up? Like that's a, that's not impressive, you know. Shine.
0: Are you ready for it? it factors success stories failures and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge then join Eric Cacciatori in today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable yeah. of guests research a restaurant online before dining out. Your website is your first impression. So answer me this question honestly. What does your website say about your restaurant? Also, websites are no longer static brochures. They're dynamic tools that can help you drive revenue. Head over to GetBento.com and see why thousands of restaurants trust Bento Box with their websites. And if you mention Restaurants Unstoppable, you can save up to $1,500 on initial setup. Get on it. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. Gusto is making payroll benefits and HR easy for modern small businesses. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service to take care of your team. To help support Restaurant Unstoppable, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today, and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll just go to gusto.com/unstoppable so with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest chef bill fuller chef are you feeling unstoppable today Mostly. <laughs> Mostly. Mostly. I'll take it. So, Mostly. <laughs> hitchhiking his way from his hometown of Du Bois. Am I saying that correctly? Du Bois. Du Bois. Here uh, in Western Pennsylvania, we take French words and we uh, mangle them. <laughs> du Bois. At the age of 18, to venture the country, uh, Bill settled in D.C. as a line cook while studying for his B.S. in chemistry at GMU. He abandoned his scientific pursuit, trading his lab coat for a chef's jacket. Bill eventually made his way back to Pittsburgh and into the kitchens of of Big Burrito Restaurants and uh, has served as the corporate chef since 1997. Today, Chef Fuller is gar- or has garnered the additional title of a partner of Big Burrito Restaurant Group and oversees a total of 19 locations. And Chef, I have to say, just doing the research, uh, discovering more about you, you have such a presence in this city and you're responsible. So for so many uh, great people coming up and just mentoring those great people. So it's, it truly is an honor to to kick off my Pittsburgh interviews, starting with you. So oh well, thanks. I, I can't wait to dive into this. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? So uh, you know, an old chef of mine, a guy
1: named Jeff Boobin in D.C., who I worked for for a number of years. He had a phrase that he would. He had a lot of phrases. You know, some of them uh un-, un unrepeatable. But um one of his phrases which I love and uh our our HR person has tried to rewrite the phrase so it fits in the manual, but it just doesn't come across well is uh keep your eyes open, your ass moving and your mouth shut. And the thing about that phrase is, you know, keep your eyes open, see what's going on around you, pay attention, pay attention to what's coming, what's happening, um keep your ass moving. I mean work. I mean work. If you're going to be successful, work. You know, all the quotes, it's 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration, work. Keep your ass moving and your mouth shut. Like, you know, think. Think before you talk. Pay attention to what's going on. Listen more than talk. You know, see what's happening. Feel what's happening. You know, don't just run your mouth and don't just project all the time, but take in. Take in Mm. because the more you listen and feel and see, the more you can think about what's happening and then interpret the world around you and react. Yeah. And- and you, know, move you move your move your your art your your business your desire in the right direction.
0: Yeah, it's funny when you when you first said keep your mouth shut. I was like, oh, I wonder where he's going with this. But I, after you explained it, it makes total sense. Uh, I love that one of those seven habits of highly effective people first seek to understand, then seek to be understood. Right, and uh, that's what I he- heard coming from you is you know really take it in, think about what you're going to say, and then be smart with your words and. Gather, gather as much data as possible and i think um, my old chef used that phrase just to tell me to stop talking <laughs> i really think was what he was using yeah. it on me for but i've, I've expanded <laughs> it a little bit i dig it man yeah. um so where did it all start for you uh sounds like it started with the girl and maybe that's how what well, well, brought you out to washington but where did like you re- when did you truly commit to this career um You know, I grew up in a small town. I grew up pretty
1: poor. So, you know, I had a paper out when I was 10. And as soon as I was 15, I got a job washing dishes. And, you know, I quickly realized... Well, there was a story. So, I worked at this place called the Dutch Pantry, which is a regional chain that's kind of um, Pennsylvania Dutch food. And their busiest day was Sunday morning. And so, I was a dishwasher on Sunday morning. And the machine was one of those really big conveyor machines. The conveyor went in one end and out the other end. So two dishwashers would work uh, on a Sunday morning, one just loading dishes on the conveyor and one unloading the dishes. And so every Sunday I worked with this other guy whose name has lost time. And then one Sunday he called off and there was no replacement. And so that Sunday I worked both ends of the machine. I'd load at one end and run to the other end and <laughs> unload. And I spent all Sunday. And then funny, funny thing is the manager then only ever scheduled one dishwasher oh. on Sundays <laughs> after that because I could do the whole job. And so I learned quickly that, you know the cook seemed to have a better time of it than the dishwasher so I, I you know i'm like well i'd like to learn to cook and so i learned to cook you know and it was like eggs and meatloaf and stuff you know, at this place so it wasn't complicated cooking and then you know i spent some time traveling after high school and you could always work in a restaurant but working in restaurants and cooking wasn't wasn't an end it was just a means yeah and so uh i i moved finally to dc after i traveled around for a while you know hitchhiked around the country for a year um and yeah, there was a girl I moved there for. Yeah. Also long lost to the, to the sands <laughs> of time. Um and I got a job um first at a pizza joint and then at a place called Kramer Books and Afterwards, which was a bookstore cafe, which really kind of fit to the things I love, you know, books and writing and as well as uh, you know, cooking and eating, you know. And so, um I worked there for a while and the the chef of the place, Damian Grismer, who's passed away many years ago, um, said you know you, you there's this cool cooking program you should go check it out and so there it was called Academy of Cuisine uh which closed this year uh after many years in business and I went and I took just two part-time classes one day a week um you know half the day it was theory and technique and half the day it was uh you know, practical knowledge and uh you know through that I got an opportunity to get a job at a place called the Occidental which was this gentleman Jeffrey Boobin, and uh, I spent 7 years working for him and that really and, and during that seven years, yeah, you know, I lived in D.C. I was, you know, from, from 19 to 26. It was pretty good years of your life. You know, I uh, uh, financed my way through college working there. Um, but he taught me how to be a chef and how to, like, be structured and organized and how to look for quality and how to cook properly. And so, um, you know, what I was collecting there was really how to do my trade. And I would, it was just a job. I wasn't even thinking about that. You know, I didn't go work there, so then I could go work at a three star Michelin restaurant somewhere. I was just, that's, I worked at the Occidental because I was paying my way through college, getting mm-hmm. ready for the next step. And then I got into grad school and I went to Berkeley. Um, and I loved grad school. And I loved, uh, you know, working in the lab and I was studying synthetic bioinorganic chemistry, the chelation chemistry of lead as it pertains to biological systems, to be kind of exact. <laughs> and, um, you know, but I didn't I didn't see where I would go with it, you know, and after a couple of years in the Ph.D. program and some personal setbacks, um, you know, I left with my master's and moved back east. And, okay.
0: you know, I ended up back here in Pittsburgh, which is close to where I'm from. So you got your master's in uh, chemistry. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and I thought maybe you had uh, given that up while you were uh, working in the kitchen. But that's really cool that you saw it through. Um so I, I want to I didn't finish the PhD though. So okay, okay. There's always gotcha. that. <laughs> so I'm curious um you, you mentioned Chef Jeffrey uh Bouben Bouben Yeah. Um what I mean you said he he taught you a lot about what how to do things, how to how to you know the the basics of being a chef and uh structure and all that. But what about how to be a person? Uh what did you learn from him as far as how to be and how to treat others? Well, you know, that's a that's a tough thing
1: because in the You know, there's this this concept of being a chef where you have to be hard. uh, And you have to be hard on the people that work for you to make them hard so they can survive the rigors of working in a a professional kitchen. And it's hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're a bunch of people, mostly dudes, packed into a small space with sharp things and hot things. Mm -hmm. And the work we do as cooks is immediate. Okay, so a ticket comes in and it's got, you know – a fettuccine, three fillets, one medium rare, two medium, one sauce on the side, uh, two striped bass, and a halibut. So you and your partners, you got to cook all those dishes to be done at the same time and put them up at the same at the same time, uh, and everything cooks differently, and they all have to look the same every time, and you have to remember it, and that's one of you know sixty, seventy, eighty tickets you're going to do a night, and so you have to, and if if you screw it up. Mm. If you, if the guy who does the fish burns the halibut, then he screwed up everybody.
0: Yeah. It's a trickle. You know, burn. the fettuccine
1: yep. is ready to go on the plate and you can't hold it for 10 minutes while the cook a new halibut and the steaks are too medium and a medium rare and they're going to overcook. And so like you have to be on point, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of f- dishes throughout a night. And so if you panic because of stress, you bring the whole kitchen down. If you're too hungover you bring the whole kitchen down. If you lose your temper and you can't focus, you bring the whole kitchen down. So you have to, you know, you have to be able to withstand the pressures of this immediacy of doing this task now. There's no inbox. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like if, you know, at the office if you got to go to the can, well you'll just make that phone call and finish that report in a half an hour. You know, you do it now. Yeah. And so there's a lot of pressure as a cook and so the the philosophy and theory was that the chefs who are in charge, they need to put pressure on the cooks and the kitchen team all the time so that when the pressure came externally in the middle of service that you were able to handle it. And there's some validity to that. There's also a lot of opportunity for just abuse, you know, and, uh, and meanness. And so the restaurant business also has been a place for people to go who don't play well with others and don't fit well in society. And so they can come in there, you know, they can come in and, you know, you're a chef or a sous chef and you're in charge of these people, you know, you can mock them and belittle them and scream at them and, you know, even throw things at them and hit them and strike them or whatever, burn them. Um, and it's acceptable. And I think, I mean, you know, that's a thing that young cooks and I'm, I'm 50. So cooks of my generation, when I was in the twenties, that's what we all learned. And, we all went out into the world when we got into supervisory positions believing that that's the way it was supposed to be. You know, much like children of abuse often end up abusers. You know, my first uh, opportunities as a sous chef or as a kitchen leader, you know, I was just an asshole. Mm. I mean, I was hard, you know, and everything was, was you know, yelling and screaming and now. Uh, the one thing that Jeff didn't do And that I always try not to do is even if you're being hard and you're pounding on the cooks to get them to do things the way they need to be doing it and faster is never take it personal. You know, you can tell somebody, well, that was stupid. That was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. But you don't say you're stupid, you know, and, you know, even when I was a crazy tyrant of a chef, I always kept that line to drive my corrections towards the action towards the product towards the job not to the person. And but that that doesn't happen. I mean, that's not everybody doesn't doesn't understand that line.
0: And uh, that makes sense. Uh yeah, I mean you, you don't want to take it personally. You're correcting the behavior not the person itself. Uh totally makes sense. Uh so let's fast forward now. Uh you decide to come back. How much how many years did you spend in Washington? So I was in D C for seven years and I was okay. in the Bay Area for three. Okay. And I moved back
1: here uh twenty three years ago. Okay, cool. Um so what brought you back? Was it uh you finished or you- So I was leaving grad school. Okay. Um I was married at the time to actually to the woman who I went to D C for and we were not working out. Um my mother had just died after like an eight year battle of cancer. So I had these, you know, these three major things that weren't working out. And so that you know, if I was leaving grad school there was no reason to stay in the Bay Area. And you know we hope that moving closer to home might help the marriage thing, which it didn't. And I was heartbroken over my mom dying, mm. and so we, you know,
0: I ended up moving back here to Pittsburgh. And uh, um, that was ninety five, right? You moved ninety five, yep. And that's when you met Tom, correct? Yeah. So how did how did that interaction go down? How did you come, how did you guys cross paths? So uh,
1: I came back here right before Christmas in nineteen ninety five. And I had lived in Dubois two hours northeast of here, which is up higher in the Allegheny Plateau. And so winters where I'm from are really cold, but they're snowy and clear and beautiful. Mm -hmm. What I didn't understand is Pittsburgh winters are gray (laughs) and wet and cold, and your feet are always wet and cold. And uh, I moved back here with no job and uh, spent December and January trying to find a job, and I couldn't get a job. I I couldn't get a job. I was offered a minimum wage job to make salads. And I like, when I worked at the Occidental, by the time I left there, I had worked every station in the restaurant. And I was, you know, running the, the a, there was a fine dining room and a grill. And I was running the grill in my summers when I wasn't at school. And I'm like, I can do all your jobs and better. But mm. so I had a really hard time finding a job. And I took a job at finally at a restaurant for minimum wage, which I think was like $5 an hour back mm. then. Yeah. And uh, it was just terrible. And so finally a friend of mine from D.C. who I'd worked with got in touch with me. Because I called my old chef and I said, do you know anybody in Pittsburgh? Because this is terrible up here. And he said, well, Petey's up there. And so this guy Pete, his uh, his wife uh, was from here and was a school teacher. And they moved here and she was teaching school. And he somehow had intersected with this these two guys, Tom and Juno, who uh, had opened these two-plate restaurants called Mad Max. And he said, well, come on. We're going to open this third restaurant. So I came on. Um, and helped open the third restaurant, and that was called Kaya, and it was like a Caribbean Latino place. And you know, I'd, I and we opened in April, and I'd spent these four months here in Pittsburgh, just saying I just ruined, I've just, I, I just screwed up. This place is gray and dismal and poor. <laughs> and there was no food, and you know, there was no light. It just was awful. It was a really black period of my life. And then we opened Kaya, this beautiful sunny restaurant, and it was full of beautiful people. Mm. And I'm like, well. And it's not that they were physically beautiful. It's just like they were out, and they were eating interesting food that we were cooking and they were having nice cocktails and you know, they were dressed in nice clothes. And I'm like, "Well, maybe Pittsburgh isn't so bad." Mm-hmm. And so uh so I stuck around for a little bit. And that's 23 years ago now.
0: So, uh in doing the research, it sounded like uh you were put into a situation as sous chef, but you slowly kind of took over. Take us through how that takeover happened how were you living intentionally Were were you jockeying for the position or were, were you just was that your natural work ethic that kind of outpaced everybody so none of my friends want to
1: go to one of those uh <laughs> one of those houses where you go in and solve solve the your way out the escape house yeah you know what
0: those are oh yeah yeah yeah. i've heard those yeah. yeah
1: nobody wants to go do that with me because they're like <laughs> we're gonna go in there and you're gonna boss everybody around <laughs> and i'm like well somebody has to and they're like well that's not the point the point is collaboration and uh you know, we opened this restaurant, Kaya, and uh, the gentleman who was hired as the chef, really nice guy, uh, his name's Gary. He just retired this year. He was a caterer, but had been friends with the owners at that point. Uh, he didn't know how to chef a restaurant. He just, he could cook and he was a nice guy, but he didn't know how to like expedite, you know, organize prep and ordering. And so, but I did. And so, even though he was my boss, I ended up just doing most of the work. And it was had a lot of friction. But finally, we had this other restaurant, Casbah, that was opening that fall. And so finally, I, I got to kind of leave there and go, go to Casbah. And, you know, I was the executive chef of that. But it wasn't that I was just like trying to crush somebody, it was just like it had to get done. Yeah. You know, like one of the things, you know, one of the details, one of the billion details of running a kitchen that I learned uh, from Jeff Boobman at the Occidental is so you have an order sheet, you know, all, say your produce sheet, you have your, you know, avocados romaine lettuce whatever you have the, the the case size on the sheet and then you have a little square where you put either a slash or a number you know two for two cases of avocados whatever so when you so you walk through and you touch everything and you write your order on the order sheet then you go sit in the office on the phone and you call it in of course now there's apps for mm-hmm. it but this is this is back then and then one of the things he was fanatical about is that every time as you ordered it on the phone you circled it so you know, you say, I'd like to get two cases of avocados, and you'd circle that, too. One case of romaine, you'd circle that one. And so that way, if you got interrupted, somebody walks in the office and says, hey, Bob just cut his finger on the slicer or whatever. When you come back to your order, you know where you were. Yep. Second of all, when you hang that clipboard back up on the, the wall, the guy that comes in in the morning to check it, you know, he or she will say, oh, this is what's ordered. So when the produce order comes in, they can look at what you ordered, yep. compare it to what's on the produce order, and make sure it's correct. Awesome. He didn't circle the stuff. And so in the morning I'd come in, and if the produce was late, I didn't know if he'd ordered it, called right. it in, or if he didn't. And I didn't even know if he'd ordered the, what it was written on there. And and it was just a million details like that that he just had never learned. Okay. So, And everybody in the company circles all their stuff when they order it. If they don't do it on the app.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, it just goes to show the importance of systems, processes, procedures, what one person missing one thing can just have a trickle effect or just a ripple effect on everyone. Um, But I'm curious, what advice do you have for somebody who's in that situation where they're running the show as sous chef, uh, maybe had better experience working other places coming up and they're seeing that they, that, that their boss, their executive chef is missing things. Like, how do you handle that as a sous chef? What advice do you have for that? You know, that's a situation that occurs a lot. Um, I actually call it
1: sous chef disease. And, <laughs> you know, basically, you know, once a sous chef works for the same chef for X number of years, there's a point when he's like, I can do this job better than, than he can, you know, the, or she can. And it's hard because you, you kind of learned a lot of stuff. And there's only one cure for sous chef disease, and that's to become the head chef. Because when you're the sous chef, yeah, you're running the line, and yeah, you're cutting the fish, and yeah, you're working really hard. You're not having to go out in the dining room and talk to the owner about how his salad was overcooked. And you're not having to sit down in meetings with HR to solve a problem with your dishwasher who claims harassment. And you're not having to sit down with the corporate chef or the uh, accountant and explain why your food costs are trending up for three periods straight. So the sous chef who thinks they know it all once they get the executive chef job it kind of cures them of mm-hmm. their disease, and yeah. uh, so many times, you know, a sous chef once they get promoted somewhere, they come back around to their previous <laughs> boss and be like, "I'm real sorry, yeah, I was it's such, humbling experience. I was such a dick." <laughs> but if you're, I think, if people are in a situation, you know, there's a you can go a couple ways with that situation. You're you're in a job, and the person who's your immediate supervisor or who's in line in front of you, you think you can do a better job. Well, you can complain about it and bitch about it and make the workplace terrible about it. And that's just going to ruin everything. Mm-hmm. It's just, you're just going to be miserable. The people around you are going to be miserable. And nobody's going to promote you because you're complaining. The second thing you can do is just shine. Just like put your nose to the grindstone, keep doing the job. And if an opportunity for promotion comes along, if you've really been shining, you should get that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And then if you don't get that opportunity, sit down with the person in charge and say, why didn't I get the promotion? And if you're not satisfied with that, then you go elsewhere mm-hmm. but the best thing to do is shine because mm. if more if you do the job and you work hard and you show up early and you stay late and you go the extra mile and you help out your coworkers, you'll move forward i mean one of the things with cooks is one of the when it came time to promotion, one of the things I always look for is you know when it's really ugly, are they helping the guys next to them? you know are they helping the people around them? Are they yelling and screaming at everybody are they 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 getting their plate up and going over? You know, and saying, "Hey, Susie, let me help you out." You know, are they at the end of the night? Are they, you know, first to get the bucket of water and start scrubbing the line, or they go out and have two cigarettes and come in and yell at the yell at the new guys to clean up? Mm. Like that's a, a, that's not impressive. You know, shine.
0: I dig it, man. Uh, so I'm curious. So you event you, you said you were an asshole when you first started. Uh, Getting this, this this role as executive chef. And I was in 97, right, with Casbah. When Caspa opened? we opened Casbah in the fall of 95. Okay. So um, it was my
1: first executive chef job. But I had plenty of asshole time at Kai as a sous chef, so I was pretty good <laughs> at that. And then earlier when I was at the Occidental in, a, in the supervisory role, I often was not a pleasant man. So,
0: what was this? Where did this evolution come of you being an asshole and slowly? evolving into a mentor and somebody who cares and who builds up those around you. Like how did that happen? Like take us through your evolution as a professional.
1: Well, I have to say that, you know, some very successful people, you know, were with me in the early five years when I was just not always so pleasant. Um, But again, you know, when I was hard, especially with the cooks, I was hard for a reason, you know, we have to do this right fast. It has to taste good, whatever. Um, But when I would lose my temper, and, like, being hard and firm and disciplined and losing your temper are two different things. What's the difference? Because losing your temper, you've lost your control, you know? And you, and you lose you lose the ship. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you're the chef and you're running a busy service and you're expediting, that means you're getting the tickets from the wait staff, reading the tickets to the cooks, coordinating what the, t- the cooks put up, and then re-communicating with the service staff as to what's going out where. So you communicate with everybody in that restaurant. All night long. Everything goes through the chef except for drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, and whatever your mood is, whatever your mojo is, that's what everybody is all night. So if you come into work and you fought with your, your boyfriend and you're getting evicted from your apartment and you're in a pissy mood and then the, the first salad that comes up, you attack the salad cook and then you attack him all night because he's the victim for you for the day, which chefs do. like. You know, you'll I'll, I'll watch it like one person will make it one mistake and that chef's got something going on. And, you know, she'll just like take it out on that guy all night long. Um, but once you, uh, you know, and you do that, like everybody sees it and like, why is he being such a dick to him? Mm. You know, and, and so and the changes the mood. And, you know, the mood of the cooks, like if they're feeling harried and abused and you know, not cared about them I and mean, they're going to do their job, but they're not going to like go the extra mile, you know, and if the servers, the servers it takes a long time for the kitchen people to understand that the servers have to walk out of that crazy kitchen room, whatever's going on and switch their whole face and personality and be gracious and greeting to the, to the dining room. And it takes kitchen and it took me years to figure that out. So like if the cooks are in the kitchen and everything's awful and everybody's screaming and yelling at each other, that's fine. That's the environment. They don't have to go somewhere else immediately mm-hmm. and smile, you know. And Mrs. Smith, who, you know, ordered sauce on the side for her salmon, and it obviously sauce on a plate. And I told you twice I wanted sauce on the side. Can you please fix it? And the server has to smile to her and say, "Well, I'm happy to do that." And then go back to the, you know, the rabid pirate ship of the kitchen and get it <laughs> fixed. Like yeah. it's really a hard thing to, for a person to do to be a server and deal with that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know. As you kind of work through the business and grow up a little bit, you realize that maybe if you are demanding and firm but not mean to your kitchen staff, you'll get better results. Mm-hmm. And maybe if you have a, an environment for the service staff where they come into the kitchen and they're not afraid, they can probably do their job better. You know. And furthermore, like when you are a chef and you scream and yell at everybody all night, when everybody goes home at the end of the night. You go home, you feel like crap. Everybody that was in the kitchen in the dining room who worked go home and they feel like crap. And they go to the bar and process and say, can you believe Chef Bill was such a screaming <laughs> dick all night long? Like, what was up his butt? I mean, you know, he yelled at Bob all night long. And the salmon Bob put up was fine. It just he forgot to put the sauce on the side. And then Bill just tore his head off and then just stuck on him all night long. And so um, and then in the morning, you got to come see each other again. And so everybody comes to work with this feeling of apprehension. You know, is Chef going to come in and still pissed off at Bob and scream at him first thing? And, you know, I, I, you know Chef will come in and be like, ah, I hope these people don't hate me forever.
0: And I hope they all come to work. And yeah. so,
1: like, there's just like this endless, you know fear and apprehension and pain and nobody wants to live like that.
0: Yeah, Chef, I love what you're giving us and it, it's like a perfect example of what Danny Myers calls skunking and uh, I had a niece Kavanaugh on the show and she wrote the, the book Contagious Culture uh, where your energy, whatever you bring to work, whatever you're putting out there is what I mean, it, it, we transfer energy constantly and you can either choose to transfer that positive energy where you're lifting people up and encouraging good behavior or you can choose to transfer a negative energy where you're, you're in a shitty mood and you're dragging everybody else down and it will trickle down to your guests. I mean, like yeah. you said, like it comes, it goes from the kitchen to the server to the to the guest. Um, and it, it, it's so contagious. Uh, you really have to be mindful of it. And you, you explained that beautifully. Thank you. Uh, so, I guess what was the evolution for you? So, uh, how did you go from being the executive chef of one restaurant in a restaurant group to being the the group executive chef? Uh, take us through that transition. So uh, when I joined you know for restaurant 3
1: this guy Pete was uh kind of the head chef for the company he was over you know overseeing the two mad maxes and trying to organize them and overseeing helping open this restaurant K- Kaya and then Casbah. he was in that position and it was fine I mean I worked with Pete he he and I got along um you know he was he was good at some things and I was good at some other things and it was fine and then he left and they hired another guy and I had said I'll, I'll do that job and they hired this other guy and paid him a ton of money and this guy just made a mess and, you know, ended up getting fired because he was sexually harassing one of the managers. And he was gone. And then after that, I said to them, well, you know, before you hired this guy, I said I could do the job. And I you know, I think still think I can do the job. And so when I became the, the corporate chef, I still was running a restaurant. So we had five restaurants at the time. I was running a kitchen. And then I would oversee and help the rest of the kitchens. Um and then occasionally I would, you know, get enough chefs that I could get free for a while. You know, at one point we had three Mad Mexes, and each of the Mad Mexes had different collections of recipes that were handwritten. There were the different recipes for the same dishes on the menu. So I, at one point I got free of running a particular restaurant and I spent, you know, kind of a half a year getting that all fixed up. And, you know, uh, eventually after a few years I was able to put together a sustainable staff where I had an executive chef or a kitchen manager in every restaurant and then I could Focus on like the, the higher order things, you know, helping you know the new chef of Soba to kind of stay within the the you know, box of what Soba's supposed to be, or working with the Mad Max kitchen managers to make sure everybody cooks every every burrito the same way. And so I got, it, but it took it took probably until two thousand whatever to be completely free of any one kitchen that I owned. Okay, you know, and of course I would get out of the kitchens, and then one of the chefs would quit. You know, one night I was filling in here. Because the chef was on vacation, and I got a phone call from Soba. The gentleman who I just promoted to chef two months ago in that restaurant who wanted the job had just put his keys in the office and left in the middle of a Saturday night. And so then I was at Soba for a while.
0: <laughs> oh, man. So. so I'm curious. You, you said that this this one guy who came in before you came in and messed everything up. Uh, let's dive deeper into that without mentioning names. I don't want to blow anybody yeah. up. But I'm curious. What's that picture of messing things well, up? Well, because there, like-
1: was, uh, there were people here who had been here in the different restaurants and we weren't perfect. Yeah. And this gentleman came in from, and I think he came in from a pretty good position somewhere. And he had, you know, had a lot of ideas and a lot of ways he wanted to do things. But, you know, it's, I often see people come to Pittsburgh from elsewhere, whether it's San Francisco or New York or LA or Chicago. And they're like, ah, Pittsburgh, you guys, <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. You know, let me tell you, because I'm from X big city and I've done X job. And well, there's, there's a Pittsburgh way, mm-hmm. um, you know, and some of the things that are the Pittsburgh way are, you know, there's only so many people, so pretty much every guest you get, you have to treat them like they're going to be your guest for life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like New York, where if you work at a hot restaurant yeah. in New York, most of the people coming in are, are food tourists, and you know what? Screw them. Yep. No, everybody that comes in here tonight probably was here a month ago, and yep. probably will be here in two months. Okay, and so you have to approach service like that, and people want a big portion. However, you feel about tasting menus or whatever. I mean, people want a full plate. Okay. And you know, one of the things that I really believe in, and we believe in as a company, is you know, you dance with the one that brung you. I mean, if you have people working with you and for you, when there are opportunities for promotion or for new you know new jobs or new projects, it goes to those people. Mm-hmm. You can hire from without to support those people and replace them, but the new things go to those people. I never look outwards for a person to head chef or general manager or a person to do a new project. I look inwards because if you're inside, you understand our culture, you understand what we're about, and if you've lasted a couple years, you fit our culture. Mm -hmm. If you come from without, I can love, you know, a couple times I interview you, I can love your references, but if you come in and you get inside our culture and you just don't fit, well, it's just it's a bad thing. Yeah. And so this guy came from outside. And he just didn't fit the culture.
0: Yeah. And even to, to add on to that, you're, you're mentioning a lot of the benefits from like the restaurateur perspective. Like they have our culture, like they're we've groomed these people. But from the employer or employee perspective, people want growth. They want opportunities. Like we, we as human beings, we need to grow and you need to provide that growth or they're going to go other places. They're going to find other people to work for. Right. Um, and it's it's. It will come back to serve you as the restaurant when it's time to look at a new property that's opening up. Like we have this great space we could potentially fill. How are we going to fill that? Well, let's. We're running out of opportunities for our people, so let's create more opportunities over here with the the guy who's right. next in line, right? So you and people know that there's growth in a company. They're going to stick with you. They're going to. They're going to wait it out. Uh, there's a lot of value there. Yeah, and 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 to not do that,
1: you know, it's just it's insulting to everybody who's at the. You know, the 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 tier where they're ready to take a step and the people behind them. Because, mm. you know, even like line cooks, like, you know, Bob's worked a grill for 10 years. There's no way I'm ever going to move over to the grill station. This sucks. I'm going to go get a job somewhere else where I can work the grill. Mm-hmm. You know, like that translates all the way up to the executive chef, general manager, regional manager level. You know, there's not the opportunity ever to do it. Then if I want to grow, you know, whether it's to grow – intellectually or personally or financially i'm gonna have to do it elsewhere
0: yeah there's one thing i i really want to dive or two more things i really want to dive into uh before we go to the speed round and that is the first thing is the the transition of uh being an executive chef uh Overseeing and executing one restaurant, but also overseeing uh, at this time was it four or how many other right. restaurants were there? Four yeah, other restaurants, four or five. Yeah. So, what things did you do to remove yourself from that executive chef role so you could be in a position to to mentor and to groom? Into if you need to, no, I was just looking to see if you need to cut through. <laughs> no. So, um, like, what did that look like? How did you, that transition of moving out of out of the the day to day and working from working in the business to working on the business? What did that look like? Well. I did it poorly and have done it poorly, and I still
1: haven't <laughs> figured it out. Um, you know, first it was just working more, even. Mm-hmm. You know, I just worked ungodly amounts of time. Um, and, and, you know, I, for a long time, I viewed it as like two jobs. Like I had my day job, which was the corporate chef job, and, you know, meetings and PL and purchasing and, you know, HR stuff. Then I had my night job, which was working in the restaurant. And so mm-hmm. I, I worked all the time for a long time. Um, but,. I'm going to step back. So when I was the chef here at Casbah and we opened, I cut all the fish and meat. Every every filet of salmon, every lamb chop, I cut it all because, like, I did it best. Mm-hmm. And I did it the way I liked it. I did it best. And I would make sure if I was going to have a day off that I got enough fish in so I cut it so it would go for two days because I didn't trust anybody else to cut the fish. And so eventually my one sous chef said, um, I can cut the fish. And I'm like, well, I don't like how you cut the fish. He said, well, just show me what you want, and we can do it. And, and so, you know, he said, you can't cut the fish forever. You know, <laughs> so, I mean, seriously. So finally, you know, we cut the fish together. You know, he saw the way I wanted it. And he actually had some feedback, like, hey, that might work better doing it this way. And, you know, he ended up cutting the fish. You know, and it bugged me for a while. And I would get mad. The fish wasn't exactly how I wanted it. But eventually I realized that he was doing a fine job cutting the fish. hmm And I could actually let that go, you know, and that was, that was an important thing to learn that, you know, you got to assume that you can teach somebody to do a thing and then let them do it and then let it go, you know, and you got to kind of let it go to the point. You have to trust that they're cutting the fish, that it's going to be cut well. And until you have evidence otherwise, you can't go even check the fish every day. You just got to let it go. If it goes off the rails. You got to be able to make sure you see it. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, let them cut the fish, let them own, the, own yeah. that, and move to the next thing. Yep. And it took a long time to to viscerally understand that. And that's what you have to do. And you have to, you know, the, the second thing is you got to learn to hire people who are kind of better at your last job than yes. you are. Yes, yes. And like, you know, my saute cook up here tonight, I can't go work a station. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how he has it organized. I don't do it every day. I know what the dishes are, mm-hmm. but I don't exactly know where everything is or the exact, you know, how far right now we're rendering the pancetta before service and how much we finish it a la minute. And like the billion little details, I can't go do his job. He's better at his job than I am. I could have done his job at one point, but now I can't. And my executive chef here, I can't come in and run this restaurant the way he does right now because he's here every day. He knows the strength and weaknesses of his whole team. He knows, you know, everything he's purchased and how long it's been in the restaurant he knows all the preparations for all the dishes and the seasonal changes that you know heavy cream in the fall and the winter there are periods of time where it gets it it likes to break separate a little bit more and you know i don't know exactly when that feel is but he probably does like and then you have to let them do that job and trust that they're doing that job and just Work with them to move forward in doing that job, and that's a hard thing to
0: learn, and I'm still trying to learn it. So the big nuggets to extract from that that, that I picked up: uh, trust and track, uh, trust, and make sure people are you're holding the standards, track it, and correct when it veers off course, and surrounding yourself with people who are better uh, than you are. How do you swallow your pride? I, I mean, I feel like a lot of people might see hiring people who are better than you are as a, a threat. Maybe like I might lose my job, or how do you get out of that mindset and, and see the good in hiring people that are better than you are? Well, I don't think anybody I've hired actually wants my job yet.
1: <laughs> every, once, every once in a while like, you're frustrated, <laughs> and somebody will be like, "Give me here's my cell phone. You want the job? Take it." And they're like, yeah. no, like I'm I'm good." <laughs> so nobody wants my job yet. Um, and I really I want somebody to come along, and want my job, mm-hmm. and, and have the you know the the skills and the work ethic to take it, because that will only free me up for more. You know there's always more to do, and so I you know it's kind of like recipes like a lot of chefs don't give out a recipe if you want a recipe if i if I have it, if it's not just in our our heads, you know if I can write it down and give it to you fine, yeah, you know number one are you gonna take my restaurant recipe where I have the prep cook bones the chickens and brines the chickens and then dries the chickens so then the the chef can. You know, roast a chicken and then add to that roasted chicken the greens that were made by the morning crew, <laughs> you know, because we have all these production streams. Yeah. If you wanna go home and make that recipe, that's fine. Yeah. And even if you want to open a restaurant down the street and put my chicken dish on, on 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 your menu, that's fine. Because really by the time you take that chicken dish and learn it and open a restaurant and put it in it, I'll have moved to a new chicken dish. Yeah. So I feel like that um how's I gonna tie that back in? I feel like that with 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 people working for me who you know take the things the responsibilities of the jobs and do them better because like i don't want to be better at being the executive chef at 11 than my executive chef at 11 Mm -hmm. because let him have that because Mm -hmm. then i have there's always more to do Mm -hmm. you know whether it's in sourcing my product uh working on new concepts public relations working with the catering company working with the other restaurants i don't want to be in charge of 11 i want to like you know Touch base with the guy, taste dishes with him, talk about product, talk about key staff, and move to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And so I want people to be better at their jobs than I could be at their jobs. And if so, someday somebody's going to be with us who's going to be better at my job, and that's just going to move me forward. You know, And so you have to have enough confidence to to feel like that. Mm. And a lot of people don't have confidence, and they feel like they scrabbled their way up to their job, and they've got a hold of this, and they don't want anybody to take it. But the truth is, if you have an opportunity to grow and somebody can, you know, do what you do and you do the next thing, you know, that's great. You know, i i a lot of my chefs, they spend a lot of time cooking the food, you know, cutting the fish. And I, and I tell them, I say, hey, you know, if if you teach uh, Sally over there to cut the fish, you don't have to cut the fish anymore. You can go do something else. You know, you can go and um Talk about the reservations with the general manager and the flow that comes in on Saturday nights, and ways you might want to be different. Or you can sit down and read some menus and work on some new ideas. Or you can, you know, come into work two hours later. And maybe let's, you know, we'll go stop over at that new Thai place and and eat some food, and we'll talk about it. And you can broaden your mind. Like the more you let go, the more you can just go forward. So, and that's that's super important, you know. And, and Danny Meyer is he able to go in and you know? Uh, run a five table section at one of his restaurants serving no Maybe someday <laughs> once upon a time once but, upon a time yeah. but today no yeah he's got he's got bigger things yep. to do you know and he's, he's counting all the money he's made mm. from shake shack he has to do that all day <laughs> i'm so jealous yeah. of that <laughs> but um yeah and so that's that's a thing that as people grow you know especially the chefs and managers i'm saying you know dele- let's delegate that over delegate the ordering Delegate their schedule writing, delegate some of the HR stuff to your peers. And the thing is, too, is when you delegate it, you add value to the company. Mm. If you're a chef in a restaurant or a manager in a restaurant and you train your sous chef or your assistant manager to do all your job, value added. Yeah. You can say in your annual review, well, look, you know, I just created three new chefs for you over the last five years. Yep i'm i'm worth more
0: yeah and uh something i was hoping would come up earlier when we brought up your mentor uh jeffrey uh boobin am i saying his name i don't know why i'm struggling struggling with boobin b-u-b-i-n yeah it's 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 yeah (laughs) so uh one thing that he said of you uh was that when you see somebody with and i'm probably this isn't word for word but when you see with somebody with the drive and the talent you push them forward uh is that something like I was hoping that would come out earlier when I asked what you learned from them? Is that something that you saw him doing and that you, the value in driving people forward and, and mentoring and, and grooming and, and pushing people forward? Is that something that you I just think thought he was do?
1: busting my balls all the time. <laughs>
0: awesome. Well, <laughs> but in hindsight, being 2020, how he was pushing you, driving you forward, let's dive into that before we move on. Because yeah, I well, I mean, there
1: you know it was it was it was a it's a complicated relationship the uh a cook and a chef you know the chef they work for especially for a long period of time and a cook and there's the mentor part and then there's a uh, you know the complicated father son father daughter mother son mother daughter relationships to, that that kind of you bring from your own life and then you paste upon your relationship with your chef as a young cook um that makes things complicated so it's always hard to sort of really look back and you know understand what was what i was doing inside my head thinking he was doing and what he was actually doing so there's two different ways to go (laughs) but um uh you know definitely he i mean every everybody got driven some people got driven out uh the ones who survived you know got driven forward Mm -hmm. um i think also that there were those of us who were who were dry, driving ourselves uh, forward too, you know. And I was always that guy who, like, you know, once I kind of got the station figured out, I'm like, well, what's he doing over there? Mm-hmm. You know, and I move over, and what's she doing over there, and move over. Um, so I think there's a complicated relation, a complicated mixture of him driving and me driving, um, you know. And it, I start, you know, I worked for him for a number of years before I decided to go to college, and then he's like, well, why do you want to go to college? I'm like, my original intention was to get a business degree. I'm like, well, you know, doing this thing, you know, I think I I want to get my education and, you know, learn business. He's like, well, if you want to learn business, just stay at work, you'll learn it, you know? So his whole point was, why would you want to do something besides this when you're perfectly good at this and, you know, he didn't say it like that. He, he, what he, What would have been great is him for him to say, "Well, Bill, I think you're doing a really good job, and I see a bright future for you. And if you just, you know, stay at this business, I can give you some advice on how maybe to round out your education at the workplace, and you could really grow into being a strong chef." He didn't mm-hmm. say that. He said, well, "Why the fuck do you want to go to college?" <laughs> um, in in retrospect, and having had that conversation with many young cooks and chefs, um, that I know that's what he was thinking.
0: He just wasn't the most articulate person. So do you articulate that? Do you choose to be clear when you're talking to uh, those people who have the drive and who have the talent that come up under you? Or are you saying, hey, man, like, you know, maybe they come in as a dishwasher and they're a sewer, or just a line cook. Do you see that talent? Do you see that drive? Do you push them forward? Yeah, I tend to not
1: get too close to anybody until they get to, like, the sous chef position. OK. I mean, when I was a chef, I would talk to, you know, this dishwasher who I really think, you know, like, just, you know, keep your head clean and. You know, we'll move you onto the line, and we'll teach you to cook. And you know, you got some real opportunities. You work hard, and the you know the line cooks like, hey, you know, this, you know, I want you to get on the saute station. You, you're doing fine on the grill, but you need to move up a little bit. I think you can do it. You know, you're always doing that as a chef. I mean, it's, if you don't do that, you're gonna fail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and now we often, you know, I'm talking to the chefs and sous chefs about their personal growth and the opportunities that they may or may not have. Um, and sometimes, still, like uh, you know, a cook will really stick out. Um, you know, and I'll take them aside. We recently had a cook here who's really trying to solve where he wants to go with his life. He's going to business school. He's going to college. You know, he was, it's funny cause he asked to talk to me and he was telling me how, you know, the, the people in the kitchen here don't understand why he wants to go to college. Why doesn't he just do this for a living? And why does he need to go to college? Can he just be a cook? And I said, well, funny you asked that, <laughs> you know, and I related to my personal experience too, um, and I don't know where he, he actually left to run a cafe and then he quit that cause it was not what he thought. And he's working for another chef across town and who knows where that's going to end up. Um, but I do try to be clear and talk about opportunities and, you know, let people know that I think you have some, I think you have some, some value here to add. I think you have some potential. So I think we just need to keep working at it. You know, we have a real structured system, yeah. of annual reviews, um, where the employee does a self-review and the manager comes in, whoever their manager is, or their couple of managers. And we go through the self-review and then we set goals and we, you know, review last year's goals. And so we, we do at least once a year, take a clear time to talk to everybody, um, about, you know, what they can and can't do. And I think that's really strong. I mean, it's really important. That's like, you know, and, and uh, it, it takes a few hours to mm-hmm. do a good annual review. And what's the impact of that? Well, it's it's funny you ask. <laughs> it's really important to carve out some time that's just for the employee to talk to the employee about where they are, where they've been, and where they're going, and what they need to do to, you know, redirect or what they're doing well. And it's their time. The rest of the time, they're giving up their life to come to work. I mean. You give up your personal time to go to work to make money to have your personal time. I mean, you know, there's a transactional nature of going to work. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a, it's it's a it's a economic transaction. I give up my life. You give me money for that part of my life, so I can go have the rest of my life. But when part of that time is all theirs, that's important. It's important that you take the time and say, okay, we're going to focus on you right now, Sally, mm. and uh, talk about you. And and it's it's and I think it's really valuable. And I I mean. You know, giving two hours once a year is the least you can do.
0: Yeah, you know, it's a a book straight out of Tom Walter, or it's a a page straight out of Tom Walter's book, Uh, It's My Company too, and talking about the difference between being a transactional organization and being a transformative organization organization you can stop at the transaction where you pay somebody to trade you know they give you your time you give giving them the money right. but you can take it to the next level and transform them give them goals keep make sure they're staying on track with those goals and mentoring them giving them advice on where they are and where they could be if they did this different i mean that's what we i mean that's what society is i mean that's that's our role everyone's role in society i believe is to look at the next generation take everything i know to be true and pass that on to you and to keep you on course. I mean, that's what we should be doing. And, uh, you're a great example of that. Uh, was it Kevin, uh, or, Sousa. Sorry, Kevin Sousa, uh, Justin Severino, uh, there's a bunch of other names I went through, but those two are on my list this week to talk to. And it was amazing to see how many people who were crushing it in this city who came through your guidance, came through your mentorship. It's so powerful. Um, is there anything we haven't discussed in this free-flowing portion of the conversation? It's hard to believe we're already at 51 minutes of recording time. Wow. It goes by really fast. Um, Anything else you want to make sure you communicate to our listeners that can make us better professionals, just better human beings before we go to that. I, I
1: think the one point, and I was kind of wanting to work this in, is one of the things that I've realized and that we've realized as a group is that not working all the time is really important for people. And, you know, in the last couple years... It's funny because we were we we sort of you know we were working on it in a real sort of casual way like we got to get these people working less we got to improve quality of life but it wasn't until there was I don't know if you're familiar with there was a proposed change in the law about what is overtime and what is salary and it moved the law was going to move the minimum like if you made I think it was twenty two thousand dollars or less you had to get overtime if you worked more than forty hours and they were going to change that up to like forty seven five okay so none of our salaried people were at 22 or 23 or 25 or whatever it was but we started to look at like the, you know the the assistant managers and sous chefs and there were a lot of them below that 47.5 who were working like 60 hours a week and so we as an organization we like, again we had been talking about improving quality of life but we hadn't actually like pounded in stone what we're going to do mm-hmm. and that forced us to reconsider how much we pay how much we expect people to work what the messages we're sending to our people about how much you work and how we we're going to change it and so what we did is we said well First of all, we're going to elevate all the salaries up to a, a better level from at the lower end and live with what happens as they rise. Second of all, we're going to change our culture and we're going to, you know, push people down to 50 hours or less. And and like in the restaurant world, working 50 hours as an executive chef is unheard of. Is unheard of. <laughs> but so one of the things we did is, you know, all like the uh, ownership and like regional managers, we get a report every morning that shows in whatever division we're responsible for, which we're responsible, um, the hours worked by all of our salary people the day before. And if it's over 10 or 11 hours, we make a phone call and say, "So, you know, so Joe, you worked 14 hours yesterday. Somebody call off. Was there a problem? Was there an emergency in the restaurant? Was were you short staffed? Why were you there 14 hours?" And we found that just by paying a little more attention. That this idea to cut people's out, we thought we thought if we cut people back to 50 hours, that we would add tons of labor to the payroll. But it turns out that it just people got a little more efficient, and they got a little happier because they're working less. And then the time they're here, they're efficient. So, and if you're working 75 hours, in you know a week, and you got to go do the the produce order, so you write your produce order, you go down to the office, plop your butt in the chair. You know, maybe before you call the produce order, you know, you go check your Facebook or. You call your family or you just sort of like space out. Well, if you're telling that person that I don't want you here 14 hours a day, they go yep. and they do the produce yep. order and then they go
0: yep. home. It, I think it's the Pomodoro effect is like the technical. It's like when you chase the clock, when you know that you have so much time to do X, um, and it's not just like you know salary I – mean, I don't know if you guys have the salary, but you're not just like there and the job gets done when it gets done. But if you have to be out because I'm going to get a phone call if I don't get – like you you put your head down, you do the work, you find efficiencies like you said, and you get creative. I think it's the Pomodoro effect. Uh, I might be wrong. But but, it, but it's worked. And yeah. In one or two restaurants, we've actually had to add some labor because
1: you know the chefs were doing a lot of physical production and cutting their hours back meaning we had to add some labor. But in general, we didn't add any labor. And you know a lot of our people have been with us for a while, and a lot of people have young families, and people are happier. like people are happier. I mean fifty hours, you know, you work five days, ten hours. who doesn't do that? Um, is really different from sixty hours. and if if you work five, 12 hour days plus commute, you have zero time on those five days for any of the rest of whatever your life is, except maybe two beers after work before you go to bed if you work five days at 10 hours, those extra two hours, you can do something with your day. Mm -hmm. And if you work five days at nine hours, those three hours more that you have, you really can do something Mm -hmm. with your day. Like you can go to the gym, go for a bike ride, you can go out to eat. Like, you know, whatever you do, whether it's before or after work, just cutting back from 60 to 50 hours or less, you get more life back. And, And it's changed the personality of, and people don't believe me. Like people <laughs> around town, I tell other chefs what we've done. They're like, "There's no way you can do that." And I sh- I show them the punch reports. I yeah. Say, here's what. Here's what. Here's what. These five restaurants. Here's the hours all the managers worked yesterday, and it's working. So, and another piece of that. And I know you want to move to your next segment. I, mean, I have all that, the time in the world. I just want to respect your time. <laughs> as a manager, you gotta set. You gotta adjust your life. So that you don't look like you're working all the time, and so like one of the things is you know in this in the executive team and the senior management team is we've changed a bunch of our habits. Don't don't send a bunch of emails at one o'clock in the morning like you're working at one in the morning. It's fine if you're still working at one in the morning. Send your emails at eight. Mm -hmm. Don't send your emails at six when you get up. Write them all. Send them when you get to work. So even if you know, as an executive or a senior management person, even if your day is still very long, don't give the impression of working all the time to the people that work under you because then they're going to feel compelled yeah, to work all the time. Yeah. Like, you know, when the, the, the owner and the president goes away on a ski trip and is keeping track of everything before and after going to ski, like, that makes me feel compelled to exceed that. Yeah. And so it's important. And we've talked about, as, you know, executive team, senior manager team. And it's good. To set to cut your boundaries back and a couple of my chefs are bad at going home they just don't go home <laughs> and I, and I've explained that like look Lily who's my chef at soba if you work sixty five seventy hours a week everybody's gonna feel compelled to do that you got to go home
0: and I, I don't care if you go home and work on menus but you gotta leave the restaurant yeah go home and this is this must be tough coming from a guy like you who had been hospitalized in the past for three days. Was it right for for exhaustion for overworking? Yeah, as soon as so, I got out of the hospital, I went back to work. Yeah. Literally, <laughs> from hospital to work. So to to come from you for for these words to come from you, for somebody who embodied that that old culture of you're defined by your work ethic, uh, it says a lot about where we've come and where the industry is moving and how we're we're you know realizing that the quality of life really does matter. Um, and, it, and it does come out the other end as better performance, better attitudes, and happier people in general. And that at the end of the day, like we were talking about it earlier, it's about that energy that you bring to work and that how that trickles down how it's contagious. It's very powerful. Um, this has been a great conversation up to this point. Uh, I wish we could keep going. We didn't like,
1: even get to sexism and racism oh, right? and immigration and healthcare <laughs> always, and- always
0: welcome back on the show. You, you've been an incredible conversation up to this point. I haven't had to do barely any talking, which is makes my job easier easy. Uh, So let's move to the speed round. We'll be right back after we uh, thank our sponsors you are. All right, guys, it's time to get real and answer this question. Honestly, does the quality of your website match the quality of your restaurants? If the answer is no, you need to do something about it because 89% of your guests will go to your website before going to your restaurant. So you've got to make sure you're bringing it to all aspects of your business. And this is where Bento Box comes in. Not only will Bento Box help you deliver your brand and your story online, but it will help you leverage the full potential of the internet because websites are no longer static brochures. They're dynamic tools that help you drive revenue with bento box, easily update menus, promote events, share, press, sell gift cards, take catering orders and book, private events, plus way more directly from your website. Find out why bento box is trusted by thousands of restaurants around the world, including past and future guests like Suvla, pizza, Emily, 11 Madison park, the meatball shop and more. Head to GetBento.com and make sure you mention Restaurants Unstoppable to get up to $1,500 off your initial setup. Payroll and benefits, it's hard. Sometimes it feels like a foreign language, especially for small businesses. I mean, you, you're too busy running your business. You don't have time to be an expert in all things, taxes and regulations. That's why there's Gusto. Gusto is making payroll benefits and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy to get things right. PC Mag and Fit Small Business have called Gusto the best payroll for small businesses. Gusto will save you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run their payroll. Gusto is more efficient and reliable. Four out of five customers actually reduce payroll errors after switching to Gusto. People who succeed in this industry have access to systems and information, and Gusto will provide both. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today and get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash unstoppable. G-U-S-T-O dot com slash unstoppable. And we're back. The first question I have for you, Chef, is what is your it factor, habits, traits, characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? I think the fact that um,
1: I'm just a little bit afraid of failing all the time. Like I don't ever take it for granted what I have. I have a great job, great position, I uh, love my family, love my company, love everything, but it could all be gone tomorrow. And so, and I've always felt like that. So there's just a little bit of fear of like failing that pushes me to make sure I'm doing the right thing day in and day out. What is your biggest weakness? So I'm afraid I'm going to fail. <laughs> and so that's the downside because yeah. there's never an opportunity to lean back in the chair and sigh and say, this is good. And I think a lot of people find that they're, you know, their superpower is linked so closely to their kryptonite, yep. and I've, I've, I, you know, I've never really thought about that, but th- I think those two pair pretty well.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I, I agree. I think Ari Wineswag makes a point to, in his book uh, how to, uh, an anarchist approach of building a great business or whatever laps anarchist anarchist approach. He talks about that, like whatever your strength is, pay really close attention to it because it's probably also your weakness. So a great point there. You
1: know, and I was gonna say, uh, you know, a couple of things I would say too is, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a smart guy. I mean, you don't get to Berkeley to do chemistry. Without being a smart guy, but oftentimes I'll I'll overthink something so far, and you the know, I'll, hole. yeah, I mean, like you know, there's a, there's a rule called Occam's Razor, and the the best solution to any problem is usually the most simple. And I'll get caught up in a complicated complicated solution to problem, and I I gotta pull back and be like, wait 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 wait, let's just whip the garlic
0: into the butter, <laughs> and then put it in the pan. It's easy. So. Awesome. yeah I can say that <laughs> what is one question you look or sorry, what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process uh the person
1: it doesn't matter what the job is for is they gotta engage it's I gotta be able to grab a hold of something in the person's life that's engaging you know they like to hike or they like dogs or you know they grew up in Dubuque, and I think Dubuque's a cool word or or they have you know really unusual glasses i mean there's it doesn't have to be weird or unusual that just has to be a hook for me to go to that person to leave and just remember them Mm. so and you can't manufacture a hook it's just there's something in people's personality or their lives that's just interesting and i think people have to be a little bit interesting to be successful in our organization awesome what is a current challenge today oh can we do another one hour one hour podcast (laughs) um a lot of challenges in my business today. I think the biggest one is the same one it always is. It's, it's people. Um, you know, I joked about not talking about immigration, but you know, immigration has always fueled uh, farming, landscaping, construction, uh, and the restaurant business. And you know, people come into this country for opportunity, and they start at the bottom, and they work up. And it's really been a building block for many businesses, and. Immigration has slowed, not just in the last year, but over the last decade, and it hurts my business because mm. people born in the United States of America generally don't want to wash dishes. Nope. Generally, don't want to bust tables.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it, I don't know that this is like you said, it's a whole another hour of conversation. I think there's an issue with our culture. Uh, as of today, like I and I, I tiptoe around saying this, but like I'm proud of what we were and what we had to come to. To get to this point, to be the nation we are today, I'm not really proud of the current state of who we are as a nation. I'm not proud, um, and it's because like, I feel like there's a lot of entitlement and um, people. Being, and it didn't just occur in the last yeah. 12 months. It's it's so. been a slowly. Uh, yeah, I mean, but this this country is built off of hard work and people. Uh, there's almost like this ideal idealism that we're all chasing of like this this woo woo like fancy world but the truth in the matter is like you do the work do hard work and just be grateful for the work you can do every day and uh, it, we're always searching for that like that that thing that doesn't really exist in my opinion uh, it's just being present being mindful and being appreciative and grateful for what you do have um i don't know that's a whole other conversation yeah. but <laughs> well uh, you know
1: the unemployment rate has been down for years yeah and unemployment rate I think nationally is below five percent well there's plenty of jobs right, and so like why wash dishes if I can go make fourteen dollars an hour at walmart yeah you know why why dig ditches if i i mean like so low unemployment actually is we're at the point i think with unemployment where there's an unhealthy unemployment level mm-hmm. that there's not competition for you know people looking for jobs,
0: and I think we're close to that level. So share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is like a, a way to be, a core value, uh, you know, that that sort of thing. Um, treat everybody with respect,
1: including yourself. You know, respect yourself, respect the people around you. You know, sometimes, you know, people will be rough and I'll be like, that person is somebody's brother. That's somebody's mm. son. That's somebody's dad. That's somebody's best friend. Like treat them with the, the respect and decency a human deserves. And that's important. You know, you got to treat people with decency.
0: So what is one uncommon standard of service? So it's it's uncommon to the industry, but standard to your restaurants uh, that you teach your staff. So uh,
1: we, I think, are, are fairly well known for not saying no to the customer. And, uh, you know, uh, recently... Uh, Somebody told me, they said, Well, don't you know that you can't spell no from Big Burrito? And that's, you know, really like if a customer wants, you know, whatever substitution, whatever special order, whatever, whatever, we do it if it's, you know, if we have the product and we are physically able to do it. And, you know, a lot of people talk about that, but there are people who ser- whose philosophy of of serving people does not include that. And we really go to the extreme. Sometimes it's ridiculous. I'm interested. Has there been a time where you had to say no? So we—it's funny because we were talking about—we were talking recently as the, as the executive team about when is a customer wrong, and and and, I mean we'll have to. There are times we say no because we cannot do it, but you know, one night I remember uh, I think I was running the line here, and it's the middle of a busy Saturday night, and a server comes back with a you know eight and a half by eleven piece of paper with two columns of words on it, and they said this person is at my table and they can't eat any of this. Oh man! Can you make them something? And, you know, they had made a reservation. They easily could have gotten us the list ahead of time. We easily could have prepared something, but they didn't. And so, you know, I'm left with the choice of, so here's one of those great, you know, points where you, you know, go one way or the other. Like, I could have, like, told the server, that's fucking stupid. You know, I can't do it. I'm busy. I got the rest of the restaurant to deal deal with. Or I'm like, I got you. And so, you know, we ran around a little extra fast and put together a couple dishes, excluding all the ingredients and made them actually taste good and took care of the person and so i i, I probably should have said no i you know we probably backed up a couple tables but we said yes because that's what we do mm-hmm. um yeah i don't have any no's right off the top of my head unless any unreasonable things like
0: so yeah. the, i had this great conversation with dave query at big red F restaurant group out of uh colorado i believe and uh the conversation that we had is when do you say no is mm-hmm. if Saying yes to one person is significantly is significantly gonna uh affect the quality of the experience for other people right um it's like because you, you can't smoke cigars in the dining room, yeah right yeah. or you can't um you know there's some there's there's an affinity amount of examples you can come up with, but is it going to negatively affect everyone else just to accommodate this one person and that's where you draw the line that, that that's what uh we discussed Do you agree with that. Yeah, but that's always a value judgment. Like yeah. At that point with
1: that piece of paper, I could have said that if I take extra attention to make this person special food, then it's going to slow down the whole operation. But what we, we did is we just kicked it up a notch and went faster. And I ran around and one of my chefs ran around with me and we put together some dishes. So we actually faced with the opportunity of saying yes and having it hurt the other customers. We tried harder to make that not happen. But you can't always do that, like smoking a cigar in the dining room is a definite, no, yeah, it's always no <laughs> it's a legal issue, yeah, yeah. Um, well even when it before it was yeah. legal, like it's just like, excuse me, sir, it's inconsiderate, please don't smoke your cigar, yeah, even when they were smoking, we would you know we'd, we'd go to people don't smoke your cigar, I mean, it's overwhelming the whole room, yeah,,
0: yeah. so uh share an online resource or tool, it could be like a magazine online magazine Instagram or, is Instagram. pretty strong Instagram, I mean, we was just looking
1: at you know looking at dishes and foods and foods from other cultures like i follow a a jakarta foods instagram feed it's all written in i don't know what language it is i mean what's 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 the language indonesian i guess okay but it's pictures of street food and crazy foods and stuff and it's just fascinating like what the heck is that who's eating that (laughs) so and you know follow other chefs and producers and people and i think instagram is great and if you want to like you know, there's this three, the three big social media right now for me is Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Yep. And Twitter is news. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can get news 20 minutes faster on Twitter than you can from CNN. Mm-hmm. Um, if something's going on, or you just learn about stuff. And Facebook is personal. It's friendly. It's going to the grocery store and running into your cousin. Yeah. And then Instagram is this really cool, just like leafing through the – Encyclopedia Britannica, if the Encyclopedia Britannica was updated every second, <laughs> and you only got the volumes that were interesting to you.
0: Yeah. So who do you, like real quick, three people to follow, three people that really give you a lot of inspiration on Instagram.
1: Three people that give me inspiration on Instagram. I got to say that it's more, um uh what's her name? C.Y. Eats. It's this uh, foodie person, C.Y. Eats, that travels around. I like to see what she's having, Uh, and she she just seems like a neat person. That Jakarta Foods one is just uh, it just blows my mind every day. And lately, I've become obsessed. Oh, there's this Korean Instagram thing where people eat, and they'll sit at a table really low with food like fried chicken or crunchy melon or whatever, and they'll eat it, and they'll take a video, and they'll turn the volume way up of their chewing. (laughs) And so I hate it. I hate it. It's disgusting. But I am fascinated by these many people that do this. So right now I'm kind of like looking at those
0: videos,
1: just trying to figure out, like, what's good? Why are these people doing this? It's not very inspirational, but it's bizarre. Uh,
0: If you uh, After the recording, if you give me the the handles of those people, I'll link to them in the show notes. This is episode 427. Head over to com slash 427 for those links. And what's one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner?
1: Uh, uh, one book. I don't like most of
0: the restaurant management books. <laughs> well, any so book. It like, doesn't have to be a really, restaurant. It could like be most of the restaurant management Michael Pollan. Or uh, what's one book about that's like a maybe even just outside of the restaurant industry that has made you a better person or you found a lot of value in? Uh,
1: so, my favorite book of my whole life is Sometimes a Great Notion by Ken Kesey I don't know if that applies at all. You know, it's funny it's funny you know in sometimes a great notion there's this lumber family that works really hard and they're successful in their lumber business and they're at odds with the local town and they consider at one point giving in to whatever the demands are of the local town you know going on strike or whatever to shut the mill down and then they say no we're gonna we're gonna do it our way and we're gonna get it done and we're kind of gonna do it at uh, whatever it takes all costs and so that was very inspirational for me early in my career, um just get it done, just plow do through and work, get it done yeah. and do the work. I don't know that it applies so much now, so I think often about rereading that book and seeing how it seeing how
0: it applies. Sometimes a great notion, first time recommended on the show. Yeah. Uh, and what's one it's piece great of- great te- American novel. I'll have to check it out. I'm doing a lot of driving these days, so audiobooks are a good friend of mine. Uh, what's one piece of technology you adopted in your restaurants, and how has it influenced operations? This is exciting for me, because you were talking a lot about how you moved to the- uh, Forty-five to fifty hours a week, uh, and fifty-five to 50, fifty to fifty-five for like executive chefs. So, are you leveraging technology to be able to manage that? Uh, like, how? Like, is that one reason uh, why you're able to do this? I, I wish efficiencies, or I wish. You know, Pittsburgh is the center of all things robots. Yeah, <laughs>
1: and it'd be really nice if the bright boys at Carnegie Mellon would uh, come up with some line cook robots, but they're nowhere <laughs> close on that. You know, the the cell phone. Yeah, I mean the fact that you know. Eli at 11 can be working on a dish and he can text me and send me pictures and we can mostly work through a dish and I know how he cooks. I know how his food tastes. And so we have this like instant communication, visual communication that we've never had before, as well as like, you know, being in touch. Um, you know, we've had some bad weather. So just like Easily being in touch via text messages about, you know, should we close early? How many reservations you got? Let me look at the weather. Um, I think the cell phone. Just the ability to communicate instantaneously Yeah, like and that. The, fa- the fact that, you know, not the cell phone, but, the you know, the smartphone, the huge
0: amount of communicating that mm-hmm. I can do, standing on the line, calling checks. Are you guys leveraging any apps uh, or any tools, specific, specific apps that you can recommend right now?
1: Uh, a lot of our uh, just, uh, vendors have ordering apps, which is nice because, again, you know, the, the chefs will walk around, they'll take their clipboard, and while they're, you know, you know running the checks, they'll put the orders in. Can you think of any of the ordering apps that are being used? I mean, they're, they're proprietary apps okay. by the various vendors. Okay. Um, and I think, I mean, the whole culinary world is just swimming in Instagram. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, go out and pick some people, follow them, you know, and uh, and I use, you know, it's funny. We were talking about Instagram before the show, and I use Instagram mainly as a pool. Yeah. Like, I, I retrieve information. My feed isn't great. You know, I'm as likely to post a picture of my dogs. Um, <laughs> but even then, like you know, Chef Bill Fuller's Instagram, people follow it, and so
0: I think your profile picture is a picture of your dog.
1: It's no, it's changed to a picture <laughs> of my – Maybe it's your
0: Facebook picture. I'm thinking maybe. Of it. But I have a. <laughs> uh,
1: so here's one thing. So uh, when you buy a new knife, it's only a matter of time until you cut yourself. Yeah. Often it's just once, but I found that every knife I bought, there's a time I'm going to cut myself. Yeah. So I had this new chef knife and uh i i I carry a chef knife around with me in my car just because you know if i go in a restaurant i'm working for a while i want my knife but i don't want to carry my big stupid knife kit um and so somehow it ended up sticking up out of my door pocket in my truck and when i got out of my truck i I swung my leg out of the truck and it (laughs) stuck into my thigh and i had to go get stitches and so uh one of my sous chefs who makes knives and makes sheaths he said why don't you give me your knife i'll make a sheath for it so i put that knife and sheath on my in my instagram
0: picture right now yeah so it was pretty gross nice did you get any leads for your uh sous chef so you got a little side side hustle going now Well, oh, he's actually no he's
1: he's he's been doing um he's been doing this for a while and he'll get like uh he'll get old knife blades and uh, refurbish them and make new handles nice. for them and or just get new blades and make handles,
0: and, or he'll make blades. Like It's, it's, it's cool. Sick. Yeah. Uh, we'll have maybe we'll have his uh, handle. Michael Taylor. Yeah, there we'll you go. hear that, too. Beautiful. All right, so this is the last question. It's a big one, so get ready for it. Uh, if you got the news that you'd be leaving this world tomorrow, all the memories of you, your work, your restaurants, would be gone or lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you know to be true uh, that would leave humanity better and this industry better, after you're left, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? So, number one is the
1: Heinz ketchup rule. And the Heinz ketchup rule is this Heinz ketchup is good. Heinz makes really good ketchup. Yep. Mostly, if you decide you're going to make ketchup, it's going to be a big waste of your time because Heinz ketchup's really good and people want Heinz ketchup. Mm-hmm. So, as you go to do things in your operation, you need to ask yourself if the Heinz ketchup rule applies. Um, it could easily be the maple syrup rule. Or it could be uh, the, you know, Parmesan cheese rule. I mean, there is rule. There are things yeah. that people do. Well, we actually make mayonnaise in, most, in some of the restaurants. But there are things that people do. And whether it's a, a carpenter to fix your house or a farmer to grow your food or a lawyer to take care of your problems or Heinz ketchup to make ketchup for you. There are things that other people do and they do better than you. Yep. And you should have them do it because you are a cook. Yeah. Or a server. And you're doing that for those people, the other mm-hmm. people. So the Heinz ketchup rule is really important. Number one, cool. Um, number two, number two is, is everybody you know is somebody's brother, sister, mother, father, daughter, son, cousin, lover, husband, wife, <clears throat> and they're all human. And so treat everybody as a human. Mm. I mean, treat everybody decently.
0: Beautiful. And the last one, hit us with it. What's up? <sighs> yeah. okay, given the
1: birthday. given the option. Drink good um, wine and eat yeah. good food. Nice. I love it. Because
0: you're gonna be dead. Awesome. Chef, you've been a great guest. Uh man, I've had so much fun, just or just uh, such a pleasure uh listening to you. Uh we wrap up every episode by calling somebody out. Uh so uh who is we take a break right now if you wanna if, if this is important. No, it's I thought you were done. Let's hold on.
1: Never mind, I was just gonna introduce you.
0: Oh, this is sorry. Dustin, he's the chef here. Oh, nice. Bye. Nice dude. I will oh, we'll, we'll catch fun up. Of him, uh, <laughs> but maybe maybe I won't maybe I won't edit this out cuz uh, this is the real raw stuff I'm after. <laughs> so, uh so we end every episode by calling somebody out. So, uh who's somebody you admire in this industry? Somebody you believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Oh. So,
1: I'm also thinking of somebody who would be suitable to be on your show. I'm going to Columbus,
0: Ohio in like a week and a half. I don't know anybody in Columbus. Okay. <laughs> you know,
1: I, I think actually, I mean, it would be interesting to see if uh, if you could get Jeff Boobin to talk to you for an hour. I His name is already on my hit list after yeah. doing the research
0: with you. That would be amazing. He definitely
1: is an interesting uh, person and a good character. I think... Um, I think in the city. Are you are you booked in the city of Pittsburgh at this point? Yeah, I'm pretty booked up until I
0: I leave. I'm I'm good with with, uh, Chef Boobin, man. Uh, It sounds like he's. I'd call him out, you know, because, and it's funny because you know he and I follow each other on
1: Instagram now, and it's like uh, he likes things that I'm really surprised he likes, like pictures of my dogs.
0: Always likes pictures of my dogs.
1: (laughs) And he, you know he has this, this image of him this tough guy chef and he likes pictures of my dogs
0: <laughs> so <laughs> that's awesome so before we say goodbye just how can we connect if we want to follow your work your instagram uh, your if you want to come join your team what's the best way for people to to uh so come my Instagram right is
1: here? at chef Bill fuller yep. um, it's pretty easy um, my email is bill at bigburrito.com. Uh, and that's if you're interested in, in what we do uh, you can drop me a note I'll try to answer it or I have somebody else answer it if I'm if I'm weeded. Um you go to www.bigbreeder.com and you can see you know all our
0: restaurants and menus
1: and and, and what we do and uh I think that's the best way.
0: Beautiful. Again, this is episode 427. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 427 uh, for uh, uh, the audio right there and also a summary of today's discussion. I'll link to everything that was recommended. All there. Episode 427. Chef Bill Fuller. Thank you again, man, for taking the time to share your story, to share your your mentorship. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. (laughs) Cheers. Thanks. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. A great conversation with Chef Bill Fuller. Uh, the big takeaway, uh, two that I can think of out of this conversation is first, just shine. You know, you're going to be in situations where uh, things aren't ideal, where you're not 100%, you know, I guess, behind whoever your leader is or uh you see areas of, of improvement. You know, don't get negative. Don't you know, beat up that person behind their back. Don't talk about what's wrong with the organization. Just do your best and shine. And uh, if you just keep your nose down, like he says, and you grind and you shine, uh, people will notice you. You will climb the ladder. You will have opportunities to make things right, but you won't make things right by just bringing that negative shit to the situation. So shine. And the other big thing I love from today's conversation is just the importance of uh, when somebody has, you know, that, that talent and that drive, uh, make sure you acknowledge it make sure you you let them know that they have something because you could be helping them find their passion they might not recognize it think about how, how things were when you were young like you you don't always recognize your natural strengths and if you can reinforce those natural strengths and and you know encourage people to lean into these areas of strengths and if they have what it takes if they have that work ethic that drive I mean you really could be uh, setting somebody up for a great career or at least a uh, Allowing them to know where they're going to excel. So, uh, and then once you, you recognize these things, help them excel. Do those annual reports, so those annual reviews where you're tracking where they are and where they should be and what they can do to get there. Like it's your role as a restaurateur to be paying it forward, to be transforming these people. And it's those people that take the time to help mold and groom these young professionals and then provide them opportunity that grow laterally and you you grow your business this way by creating those opportunities. Uh, So awesome stuff. Uh, Like always guys, please do help me spread the word about Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, Share this resource with anyone and everyone you know who's aspiring to be great in the industry. My my mission is to create positive change and I do that by uh, sharing knowledge and uh, making an example of those we're great so if we're going to change things in our industry we got to share this knowledge but we gotta you know we gotta spread the word so please share this episode uh you can shoot me an email eric at restaurant unstoppable if you can think of somebody i should be making an example of uh and if you do have any subjects or topics you want me to cover i can get an expert on the show shoot me an email again eric at restaurant unstoppable instagram twitter eric Catchatory and slash restaurant unstoppable on facebook all right guys that's it for all, uh, or that's it for all. That's it for now. Uh, this is my first on the road uh, interview uh, away from home in Pittsburgh, PA. I got a bunch more coming at you. Uh, eight interviews I'm recording this week, so I got my work cut out for me. But I'm loving every second of it. You guys are, you guys are in for treats. So I'm telling you that much right now. So get ready for it. All right. Until next time. Peace out.